Okay. Am I on the screen? Am I a little off the screen there? Okay. Do you want to... Oh, it froze up. It froze up. We're going to have to... Hold on. And hopefully we can hear, and there's sound coming out, and everybody is able to join us. So, very soon my wife is going to be, yes, very soon hopefully my wife is going to be listening to your comments and feeding them my way. <laughs> All right, we are going to go to Ephesians 4. Um, Things that are going on for us as a church, for those of you who are watching and for the, those of us who are here. Uh, we have, uh, this past Sunday was the end of our voting. Um, I know that if you forgot to bring your Operation Christmas Child box, you can bring it in this Sunday and drop it off as well. So uh, if you forgot it for some reason or you want to participate in it, feel free to do that. I am frozen in a spot. I'm not sure what is happening technologically with our technology here, but I can certainly get us back to operational again. Um, meanwhile, as I'm talking, uh, the Operation Christmas Child box I was saying is uh, you can still turn that in this Sunday if you need to. And what else? Oh, this Sunday is our praise service. And as our praise service, we should, hopefully it will stabilize here. We can have video as well as sound for people who are watching in. There you go. There you go. Okay. They're just a little delayed. So as you're watching it, it's just a, a few seconds behind there coming out and coming live. In any case, we are, um, Sunday is our praise service. We have, since last year's praise service, reduced our service a little bit in length. So it's now an hour instead of an hour and 15 that we were doing last year. Um, we also this Sunday have the wonderful privilege of having Lauren Pupchik come and tell us some of the things that are going on with her. So between the two of those things, it will be a rather quicker feeling. It always is quick, but it will be rather a quicker feeling 
time of praise, time of thanks. But it is an opportunity for people to give thanks together of that day because we're kicking off the week of Thanksgiving. And that opportunity is going to be a little different because we're not just going to be walking around passing the, the mic around. So I'm going to find a couple of mic stands up front. We'll have a, uh, you know, the ability to have a line with people that can stand a little far away from each other. And, and we can just not lose any time by walking around. But instead, people can just come up the front and wait in a spot in line. And we'll just go back and forth. And just if you're coming to share Sunday, uh, we love hearing from people sharing their gratitude. But we also would encourage you to be mindful about the fact that it's a little shorter so that many people can have their opportunity. I know that during our worship time, we're going to see some people's thanks uh, shown up on the screen, which is also cool. So it's a little different, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it always is a great kickoff to Thanksgiving week. And uh, I think Christians, above all, should own gratitude. So we'll have that opportunity. Okay. <laughs> As I continue to talk, I'll show you what I'm going to do, and you can do this next time. So, uh, other than that, we have Christmas programs coming up. We have uh, Christmas Eve service in the works. Um, it's going to be a little bit weather dependent. See how that goes. Uh, but you know, with with how things are, and really over the past week, we've had a number of people at home test positive for the virus, and the country's numbers are going crazy. So for us, I think, if we want to have the, the impact for Christ, especially in the, the Christmas season when someone might feel like coming out for the Christmas program like that, assuming everything is still able to go up to the meet, which I, I think that's a decently reasonable assumption, there really haven't been any widespread transmission cases at churches. They're talking about restaurants, they're talking about uh, bars, they're talking about things like that, but churches really have not been a hub of that kind of um, spread. So. I think we're probably in decent shape that we'll continue to meet, but that means some people might come. It means we ought to be pretty conscientious, especially on Sunday morning, about uh, you know, the social distance and the masking, just for the sake of making it through, but also for the sake of the impact uh, of the gospel on people during this time where they might be very nervous coming in. Certainly, anyone's nervous coming to a church for the first time anyway, let alone in, a, in an environment like this where their background may be or they may be health compromised or something like that. So we just have to double down a little bit on making sure that we are conscientious so that this is a welcoming place over the next few months. All right, so we are in Ephesians 4. And uh, yeah, you could go around to the soundboard there and you could turn up. Okay, you could, you could turn down those number three and four. That is the room mic, so that might help the static. And you can turn up the other one that's up that with a light on. That would be my voice. Okay. Lots of technical problems. So <laughs> we will get to Ephesians chapter 4. And we have been going through some of Paul's instruction to us and really some of the, 
I would say Christianity known behaviors. Like over time, people say, oh, you're a Christian. Some of the things that they mean when they say, oh, you're a Christian is some of the stuff he's talking about here. So last two weeks ago, we talked about how the first zone of therefore, because you are to be made new and put on the new mind and all that stuff. Therefore, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Uh, Christians, I know this isn't a surprise to us, (laughs) but Christians are supposed to be honest people. (laughs) That is part and parcel of what it means to be made new. We've embraced the truth. We've thrown off lies so that it brought us salvation. So we should be people who value the truth, people who guard the truth, people who live in the truth. Last week, we talked about the next couple of verses, which were, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So we talked about anger. We talked about how Christians are supposed to be people who resolve anger. We don't just let it linger. We don't just let it sit there. We don't um, just dismiss it. We certainly don't try to feed it or live in it. But Paul says there is... Anger shows up in our lives. Do not allow it to grab the steering wheel and drive you into sin. And anger, left unresolved, will naturally drive you into sin. It makes you self-centered, self-focused. It makes you convinced about your strength and what you can do and how you can pay somebody back or how you can, through frustration, push through and make something happen. Uh, In your bitterness, how you can withhold forgiveness from someone and make them pay. So anger doesn't lead you to anywhere that is faith-filled. It leads you to sinful patterns, inevitably, if we leave it unresolved. So believers should be very good at resolving anger. I don't know that we are, but I think anybody in the world would think, if you're a Christian, you probably shouldn't be mad all the time. You probably should be somebody who is able to resolve your anger and move on. You shouldn't be somebody who's just bitter and holding a grudge and making sure that people pay. And one of the ways that that happens, kind of we talked through a lot of this, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In other words, believers, not that this is a law where the clock is ticking and, oh, if the sun goes down, oh man, you sinned. It's not that so much as it is. Believers should be people who are who move directly, as quickly as possible, as feasible, as as healthy, towards resolving anger. We don't just leave it there. We don't value living mad. It doesn't help us. It doesn't feed our faith. It doesn't give us uh, the, the, the strength for the fruit of the Spirit to flow up in our lives. So we don't value that. So we just don't let anger sit. And by the end of the day, assuming it's not the last thing that happened in your day. By the end of the day, we in general have resolved those things of anger, whether it is putting our faith in the Lord again. You know, when, when people in the world do things that affect our lives that we think are dumb, instead of just sitting in it and letting it brew in us and stew in us and pop out as soon as somebody hits us on that sore spot, here comes all this anger. That's not what we as Christians are. We're to be made new in the attitude of our minds. And so therefore, we are people who are supposed to be able to say, okay, Lord, I trust in you. And even though I disagree with the decisions that have been made or what that person did hurt me or whatever, my faith is in you, so I'm going to be okay. I know I'm going to be okay. So I don't have to hold on to this. I can let it go because I know that you're going to resolve it. So I can be resolved about it. That's the the way that we work ourselves towards uh, not letting the sun go down while we're angry. 
So let's keep going because the next part that we're going to talk about tonight is do not give the devil a foothold, which is probably connected to that anger stuff. And anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. All right, so we begin finishing up the thought from last time, but really this applies to so many things. He says, do not give the devil a foothold. So let's think about giving the devil a foothold. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that look like? In It doesn't have to be in anger or honesty or stealing. I mean, it can be. But in our lives, when Paul says don't give the devil, don't give him a foothold, what, what does that look like? How do people do that? Okay, so what you're saying is dwelling on anything unkind or unchristlike, but practically speaking, like giving him a foothold means somewhat embracing it, making kind of room for something that doesn't belong there, and letting it just take up residence there. Okay. Yes. Some of the way that we give the devil a foothold is we have righteous reasons for unrighteous things. So like you're saying, always wanting to be right, but I am right, and it's just for people to see that I'm right. So I hold on to this. So my, the way I give the enemy that space and I let him have a base to attack me from is I justify something that will lead me to wrong, but on the face of it, if I don't dig too deep, looks right. You know, I am correct about this, or the Bible says such and such, and so I'm going to beat people over the head. <clears throat> and so it makes it so that the enemy has a vulnerability in me because I just let this thing sit here unresolved, unevaluated, and I and kind of am believing some of that lie that this is okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's that. Mm -hmm. give the enemy a foothold let him get his foot in the door just through a crack doesn't need to be a big thing and i think we really underplay this in our society today we are bombarded by fleshly things all day long so it is difficult unless we're going to go be amish or under a lockdown i guess but <laughs> unless you're going to just isolate completely isolate from the world it is difficult for you to be fully on guard. So there's some numbness that comes to us. But do you recognize how what we see portrayed in, in drama and comedy allows us to see value or normalness in things that aren't right? So there's a foothold that comes as we digest this and i'm not saying you can't you like anything you watch that's wrong you need to turn it off because pretty much you can't talk to anybody in the world then like that's but you can't let it come in unwary you, unwise you can't just be like oh well i 
Yeah, that's normal. I see that all the time. It's no big deal. I've, I've seen that trend over the 25 plus years that I've been a pastor. I have seen the trend of much more commonplace things in church that when I began as a pastor, people were like, there's no way. That, sh- that would never. And now it's almost like, what's the problem? So that drift is giving the enemy a foothold in us because we are not really passionate about discerning right from wrong. And some of that foothold is, I think wrong is good. I think it's fun. I think it's uh, better. It would make me better. It would make my life better in some way, more popular, more connected, or be a part of the crowd or whatever. I have some idea that doing the wrong thing would benefit me instead of seeing it as death. Indoctrination. But I, I don't need it from, indoctrination says from outside, which certainly is some of the stuff that happens. I talk myself into it. If I'm going, like let's say, let's say I'm a high schooler, right? When I was in high school, uh, a lot of the kids in my high school, even though it was a Christian high school, uh, were drinking pretty heavily on the weekends and uh, smoking weed. Yeah, it was, those were... So, right. Now, I, not because I'm some uber Christian or whatever, but it was never, that was never a thing for me. It wasn't even, it just never struck me. And I was never uh, with the in crowd. I was kind of, I was kind of friends with everybody. Nobody did dislike me, but I wasn't really close to everybody. Because when the weekends came, nobody invited me to come do things with them because the things they were going to do, they didn't think I would want to do. So let's just say I'm feeling left out and I'm feeling, you know, isolated and, and maybe uh, like I don't fit. What do I start saying to myself? Yeah, if I just blah, 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 then I can, then my life might be a little better if I, if I fit in. And that's what I'm saying is indoctrination is certainly a thing from our culture, but I can't control them. But what I, my battle is with me. When I start thinking that some of the things that are wrong would help me, I'm giving a place to the devil. I'm allowing him to have it. Literally, a place, it means an opportunity or a chance. And it means if you're letting him hang around, he's going to attack you. If you, if you are giving him space, if you're just letting him be there, if you're not fighting, if you don't even know he's there, if you're whitewashing and calling him something that he isn't, oh, that's just, you know, a wishful thinking, or that's just, uh, you know, those, those people kind of say, you're not even recognizing that you're fighting a spiritual war. And so because of that, you remain vulnerable to him pulling you in. People who are fighting addictions understand this really well. If you're fighting an addiction, you don't make any room. You, you try, what do they say? Uh, people and places and patterns. So you go, you cut off the people who dra- and you don't go back to the places that, because even if you're planning on not partaking, the pull is strong. So they understand don't give place to that addiction because that's going to pull you in a place you don't want to be. But as believers, I don't know that we see it as deadly. And obviously many addicts don't see it as deadly because they are still in their addiction. 
But if you're trying to break free from that, you have to be very aware of giving place. And we, as believers, are told here to not give place to the devil. We don't want to invite him to hang around or keep having a voice in our lives. We don't want to go window shopping in the wrong store. Like, I know I'm not going to buy here, but I just want to look, you know, like spiritually speaking. I don't want to go to the devil's bazaar and like, oh, that looks like fun. And oh, yeah, well, I'm a Christian. Good thing I'm a Christian because I would be all over that. Like talking to myself in things like this would be desirable if only I could. And that is what Paul's talking about as he says, don't give place to the devil. If you keep considering or contemplate something you know you shouldn't do, you are really already deciding to do it. You're just looking for the excuse. You're looking for the opportunity. You're looking for the way to do it that you can rationalize in your head. Otherwise, you should not give place to the devil. You should have already said no to it and moved away from it, recognizing the deadliness of embracing it. And when you don't, it's deadly. When you don't, it, that trap snaps on you. Paul says it a little bit differently uh, two books over in Colossians chapter 3. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he gives a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming, and you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. See, Paul says, put it to death. And that, that gives that imagery of hand-to-hand combat to the death. That's messy and and everything's at stake and it's strenuous and you're all in and you're, you don't just surrender and you don't just look for an opportunity to give in because if you give in, it, it's death for you. So Paul says, put it to death. He says in Romans, don't make any opportunity for your flesh. In Romans 16. So these words from Paul are, as we look at these behaviors that should not be a part of us as Christians because we've been made new and we should be putting on the new self, falsehood and, and deceptiveness, anger that's out of control and unresolved or, or a person who just stews in it, and then eventually stealing and unwholesome talk and, and, and all the, the things he says down in 31. Those things are all started in general by a believer giving place to the devil, giving him a, a standing spot to attack me and not fighting like it's life or death. So unresolved or persistent anger opens the door to sin. Anger feeds into the idea that our viewpoint and our understanding, as well as our choices, are superior to others. Anger almost always, I cannot think of a time where anger doesn't need you to be in a superior position to the other person or the, the situation or whatever. You know better then what should I, you know what this means, you know what they should have done, you wouldn't have done it to them. Like, anger is always about superiority. And because anger comes from superiority, it drags you into self-centeredness, self-focus, it drags you into pride. And even when you're correct that you were right and they were wrong, your flesh will use your, the facts of your rightness to pull you into sin. It's a hairy thing. 
really is. A anger and this idea of giving the enemy a foothold. So we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't deceive people. doesn't mean you can't throw a surprise party anytime for someone because you can't lie. I mean, it is stressful. It is very stressful. Surprises are always stressful. But the idea isn't, oh, you can never say something that's untrue out of your mouth because sometimes we're mistaken. Sometimes we're, we're doing it in the context of a relationship where we're doing it because it's, it's something like a surprise party or something like that where we're keeping a secret because it's going to be fun later on. Deceptiveness for selfish purposes. Deceptiveness for control purposes. It's not a part of Christianity. That's part of stuff we should be putting off and putting away. Anger that stays with us and sits with us. We should not be angry people. If we struggle with honesty, if we struggle with anger, Paul says the remedy is not to just stuff it down or to just try really hard to change. He says the remedy is to go back to what did Jesus do for you? What did he do in you? And how much was that worth? In other words, if Jesus thought that being set free from anger, being set free from uh, deceptiveness, was so valuable that he was willing to give his life for you to be free from it, how do we entertain the idea that it might be cool to go back to it? That's where you get freedom when you start embracing that. The next zone is verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. All right, so stealing. Clearly, we're again, Ephesus, the, the people in the suburbs around Ephesus, these are not long-standing Christians who have grown up in any kind of religious culture. They are pagans and every man for themselves and get as much as you can. And so some of them are very poor and because of poverty, it felt very justified in taking things that they needed from other people, whether they really needed them or kind of needed them, it was very justifiable. So Paul says to them, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. The verb tense here is not past. So it's not like when you did steal, if you used to steal. He's not saying that. He's saying to Christians, Anyone who has been stealing up till now, that's not you. Knock it off. So it's not that believers magically transform in their actions. It takes appropriation of what happened to me in my soul in order for, and some of that takes understanding. So Paul says to them, listen, if you are stealing still, just like you were in your old life, that is part of your old life, you need to stop taking what doesn't belong to you. He's not also using it in a way that suggests someone who can't stop themselves in an addiction or a compulsion or something like that. He's talking about this is somebody who has not yet realized that taking things that are not mine is not part of what a believer does. Christians who continue to steal after becoming believers, not recognizing that this old pattern or behavior is not fitting with following Jesus. Paul says, believers are not stealers. We don't take things that don't belong to us. So give me rationale for why a believer does not steal. And, I, and maybe, maybe we should start with, well, let's start with that. Why does a believer not steal? What about a believer or being a believer makes it so that stealing doesn't make any sense and is not part of who I am or who I should be or how I should be in Jesus Christ. 
What do you think? Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. Something that has been clear for a long time in that God gave Moses the commandment, thou shalt not steal. So centuries and centuries. And logically speaking, one of the things that we do in following Jesus is follow that golden rule, do to others as they would do to you. So I don't want people taking my stuff. It's not theirs, it's mine. So I shouldn't take theirs. I don't always know that if somebody was going to take my stuff, maybe I would be like, you don't know how hard it was to get that, how much I need that, how important that is to me, whatever. So similarly, on the other side, I wouldn't know how hard it was to, for them to work for that. I don't, you know, I just kind of make an assumption that if I can do it and I can get away with it, then I'm just going to take it for myself. Yeah. Other thoughts on rationale? So as a believer, who provides for my needs? My Heavenly Father. And Jesus said that. Do you see the sparrow and see the grass? And your Father knows you have need of these things. Don't you think he will give them to you? So Jesus taught us that the Father takes care of our needs. As soon as I go to take something that I need, that, that God has not provided for me legitimately, I don't have the authority or any legitimacy to taking that for myself, I'm stepping outside of the idea that God will provide for me, and I'm saying, I can do this. I can make it happen. It is a turning away from a faith living that God will watch over me, that God will provide for me, that God will do what is right by me. Yeah, good. So, like, maybe we have people who have been stealing, going into stores or are bank robbers or whatever. Probably not most of us. So is this just a command that's in there just as a coverall, or is there some application, maybe in a little more um, a, a easier way for us to justify taking something that isn't ours, uh, taking things we don't have the authority or the right to have? Any things in our, in our world that believers should be a little more aware of that this is taking something that's not legitimately mine. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it, so so an office worker or any any worker at any job that goes, well, I'm just taking this from my job because they owe me. They don't pay me enough. Uh, it's just a pen, it's just a whatever, fill in the blank. And so we start to rationalize something that should not be a part of a believer's life because we say it's not a big deal, as though the price tag on it is the problem. Because the price tag's not the problem. If the price tag was really the problem, you probably wouldn't just steal the small things, right? In other words, the price tag doesn't make a difference in the morality of it. 
in the rightness of it. We as believers have to be people who look at it through the eyes of God will provide for me. When my boss does not treat me fairly and I go and, and I can't seem to find any remedy with my boss, who do I entrust? Where do I go then? I mean, if I'm going to have peace at night and go to sleep at night, like my family's not in danger and my life's not in danger, and the unfairness of it all, the anger of it all, what, what do I, I have to go to the Lord and say, God, my life is in your hands. If you want me to pursue this further, show me, lead me. Give me the opportunity, give me the words, draw me forward into this process. But I'm willing to just lay, leave it in your hands right here. There's peace in that. But what we wind up doing is the quick, simple thing instead of the tension thing. Just rationalizing even very, very small theft. Good. Other things? We're going to level the playing field. Yeah, 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 for sure. And th I think, it, I mean, you can go outside of just physical property, too. You can go to things like intellectual property. If you're a, a believer and you're doing school or you're a teacher, a, a, you know, professor or something like that, and you take somebody else's work and present it as your own, that's stealing. Uh, there, you know, I, even a, as a pastor, like there, I could go purchase uh, message series things you know, and to use on Sunday morning in church, which are well-packaged and well-done, and, and many, many pastors do that, which is awesome. But if I was just like, oh, no, I just had a, a little extra time this week, and I just threw this together, the, I am really taking the credit. Even though I may be paid for it, I have the legal right to that thing, I don't have the right to present it as though I put it together. It was mine. I'm taking credit. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of ways that we try to take illegitimately because we can and get, get away with it, what isn't ours, and use it, uh, use our power. Instead of doing that, he says, we must work, doing something useful with our hands. This work ethic is to be an earmark of what it means to, believer, to be a believer. Hard, working, reliable, productive people. That's what we should be. If you want to have the name of Jesus lifted in your life, you cannot take the portion of your life that is your career and say, I'm just going to be a slob there. I'm just going to be, you know, all faith. Well, God's got me. I don't have to do anything. God's got me. And think that people are going to be like, oh, Jesus is great. But if you will work hard, if you will be someone who is reliable and faithful, it will honor the name of Jesus. It's one of the reasons Paul says in all of these epistles, work like you're working for the Lord, not for the person in front of you. Do go to your job and do your job like God is your supervisor and he is the one who will get the credit. He is the one who will get the benefit from what you're doing. This is not, when he says they must work, he's not talking about easy work. The Greek word connects to the idea of exhaustion or weariness. They must wear themselves out. They must work hard. Christian live differently. That's what we do. We live differently. We don't just, hey, the end justifies the means. We don't, hey, if nobody finds out, it's no, it never really happened. It doesn't matter that you can more easily get what you need by stealing it or that you can get more by stealing. We are to walk by faith that what God has given us and what he's enabled us to do will be enough. That is where the real struggle is in the idea of stealing, that what I currently have is enough 
and is better than if I could take something that I do not have a legitimate right to, but I will never get found out. I am not better off to have that and not get in trouble. I'm better off to have what God has given me and let that be. That is a believer's approach to stealing. Now, why? Why do we do that? We talked a little bit about why we don't steal. Paul's rationale is a little different. Paul says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands. Last part of verse 28 says that they may have something to share with those in need. It's not because God provides for your needs. It's not, like, that's not what he says. He comes back to the theme he's been on through this whole thing. And in 25, when he's talking about put off falsehood and speak truthfully with your neighbor, it's for we are all members of one body. If I deceive you, I've hurt myself. We are connected. Down here, it is you should work hard enough that you will have a little bit more than you absolutely need so that you can share with others who don't have as much as they need and you can be part of God's provision for them through your willingness to work hard and faithfully. I don't know how regular and how normalized it is, but I, I think it's something very important for believers to get this straight. But I don't know if we got this straight. Some of the reason I work is so I can help people who are in need. If the money is not all mine. The stuff is not all mine. If I see it as all mine, I've missed something. I've missed out on what God has done in giving me employment and giving me a job and giving me a day and giving me strength and giving me ability because some of what he's given me is for the benefit of others. According to a verse like that, I am to work hard so that I have enough to provide for the needs of myself and my, those who are mine and I can be on the lookout for people around. Some of the reason people are tempted to steal is because they bought into this idea that I need more and more and more to have a better and better and better life. This coming Sunday is our praise service. It is one of the ways we try to guard ourselves against believing the lie of more. I am thankful for what I have. I recognize how God has been good to me. And in doing that, I try to insulate myself against believing that my life is miserable and I have no choice but to be miserable and crushed and hard-pressed and all this because, oh, what if, if only I had more, then I could be okay. But I don't have more, so here I am, stuck, miserable. Thanksgiving and this praise service are our opportunities as believers to come with gratitude and set ourselves free from that idea. But it is hard in a go-go world to let that settle in and, and be, I have enough because God has given me enough. And even though it sometimes feels like much less than I would like or much less even than I think I need, what God's given me is enough and I can find joy and gratitude. I would to God that we as believers would not allow ourselves to live miserable, but we would instead fight to see good, to have joy, to have hope, to have peace and strength, to have enough to share with others. And that doesn't mean that I need to become a workaholic so I can have the big vacation and the big trip and the big house and the big boat and the big vacation home and the big, all this big, big, big. And then 
Okay, well, I got to keep all that up. And then I got to work a little extra hard so I can give a little bit away to somebody else. The heartbeat behind this was, I know I'm, I'm, if God has given me the ability, I'm going to provide for, for me and mine. But I'm going to try to do something extra, if I can, whatever I can do extra, so that somebody around me who's in need, that I can be God's hand of provision for them. So for us as a church, some of that means when you go to work and you get a paycheck, some of that paycheck is for the work of God here at home. It's not just for you to have another, you know, uh, dinner out or uh, a couple more outfits that you can wear or whatever. It's not just all, what am I going to do with this for me? Some of what God gives us is for the work of God in his church. Some of what God gives us is for people he's going to bring across our path that have needs. And if you have not come across the path of anyone who has physical, financial, material needs in your life or in past years or whatever, we're missing it then, right? Because I'm supposed to work hard so that I can have to give to someone who's in need. The presumption is somebody around me is going to be in need. Unless you actually believe nobody in my whole life, in my whole state, in my whole world or whatever is in need, unless you actually believe that, then maybe I'm just become oblivious to the need around me. Some of what I'm working for is so that I can share with other people. The backbone of this instruction, the ethic that looks to love and serve others. Paul says, your work should not simply be for your own needs, but you should work so hard that you can help others who don't have enough. It comes directly from the love we're called to have for one another. So, God may give us opportunity or ability beyond my legitimate needs because he wants to meet someone else's needs through me. And that seems like so, if you, if you kind of distrust God or you have a dark view of God, it seems like, why would God do that? Why not just give everybody what they need for themselves? Why would God make you have a little more ability and someone else have a need so that you could share with their need? Why didn't you just give them enough so they could supply for their own needs? What would we say to that? Like, why, why would God set it up like that where maybe I have opportunity and I have ability and I can make a little bit more than I legitimately need or I can have a little more than I legitimately need because God wants me to share with someone who doesn't have enough instead of giving them their own ability to make it, he gave it to me. Why would God do that? Okay, Christmas shoebox, right? There's something more in that mechanism. Here's people who are filling a shoebox to send to people who probably don't have very much. And it's not just the transfer of stuff. There's community. And there's, a, there's love that gets sent in a shoebox at Christmas time. There's love that gets sent in that shoebox. That wouldn't, if we were all just silos and we could all just be our own person to take care of our own things, we would all be satisfied with our material needs, but we would be desperately missing something we actually need that isn't physical, community. So in a church, people say this to me all the time, I hate to be the one who asks, I hate to be the one who asks. Don't. It's part of God's, you are part of God's provision for this church. Your need is a part of God's provision for this church. Because if we all just had enough all the time, 
we're, God's trying to build community here. So if you can step in and say, hey, I have a need and watch other people meet it, community happens there. And at the end of it, and I've seen this, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen this over the 16 years of our church. It doesn't matter who was the one who had and who was the one who didn't. There's a community there that the, the issue fades out into the background and now there's love and there's connectedness and there's sharing and there's prayer for one another and there's your victories are my victories and your sorrows are my sorrows and there's a bond that goes on and it doesn't matter that I was the one who had or I was the one in need. It doesn't matter because now we know each other and we're convinced of our love for one another. God has this way of using the material to accomplish the spiritual. And for us, we want to separate it far too often. This is my physical world. These are my financial things. And then over here is my spiritual stuff. But this stuff, God just turns upside down over and over and over again and wants to use it for our spiritual benefit. Because the only thing that lasts is the spiritual. This physical stuff, if it's not used for spiritual, it's just, Haggai says, it's like putting it into a bag that has a hole in the bottom. The more you put in, more you lose. There it goes. Uh, the psalmist says over and over again, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's burnt up. It's just nothing. So the only way it's redeemed for something bigger is if I don't keep it separated, segregated. If I integrate it as a part of my faith and I say, there's ways that God wants to use my physical well-being, my physical provision, my physical sustenance so that I can shine the light of Jesus. So we're uh, doing... Operation Christmas Child right now. We're about to pick up and do another thing for Christmas called Adopt a Family, I believe. Adopt a Family. It's an organization around that will allow us to adopt families in our area who are in need at Christmas um, and give us a, you know, a list of things that we can get for them and some grocery things, whatever. And our youth group's going to lead this because our youth group's doing this, so they're going to include us in it. But it's a, it's a fantastic way. We don't know these people fantastic way to take some of the provision we've been given and use it to show Jesus to people around us. And it's not just people who don't know Jesus. It's people who do know Jesus but are hurting. They need to see Jesus in the Christmas gifts. You know what I mean? Because it can be discouraged. It can be heavy. If you're a parent and you can't do anything for your kids at Christmas time, you feel like a loser. And yet, if you see God provide, I've been on the end of this. If you see God provide at Christmas for your kids when you couldn't do anything for your kids, you recognize that God is with me. God is watching over me. And it doesn't matter who it came from because really you see past it to the Lord at work behind all of it. So we cannot underplay this idea that we are not to steal. We're not to be dishonest. We're not supposed to take things that aren't ours. But instead, we're supposed to work like it matters even though we know it's all fading away because it matters in that I can sustain my life and my family's life so we can shine the light of Jesus, but I can also share with someone else who does not have enough because I've worked hard, I've been faithful, and I've worked hard enough that I can share with someone else who doesn't have enough so they can know Jesus too. So community can be built, so love can be spilled out. Looking for the needs of others. In this New Testament thing, and this gets said a lot about the Bible is socialist, the Bible is communist, the Bible talks about us having a heart to help one another. That's what the Bible talks about. It doesn't talk about government imposing that on us, which I don't know that that's ever really worked. But the reality is, if you have this idea of, 
I'm going to make it happen myself. I'm going to have a hard work ethic and I'm going to make sure no, I never am in need of anything. And you believe that's how you evaluate your life. What if God's plan for you is to be the one in need? Even if you work hard. You're supposed to be the one. I've been there. I worked hard and I was in need. So it doesn't go together just one-to-one like that. But on the other side, it doesn't teach laziness. It doesn't teach that, well, it's all in God's hands anyway. I'll just leave it there. It teaches us to be faithful to what we've called and have our eyes on Jesus every step of the way. So we are not to be people of deceit. We are not to be people who sit and stew in anger. And we are not to be people who steal what is not legitimately ours. And in all of that, it's about community. Don't let anger destroy community. Don't let dishonesty destroy community. Don't let uh, need destroy community. All of it's about the body of Christ, which is what Ephesians really has been about up to this point anyway. All right, we are going to finish there for this time, even though we're in the middle of a topic. We're going to come back to talk about unwholesome talk and that kind of stuff when we come back in January. And we'll see where we are with the virus and attendance and whatever. We may well just be virtual for, the, for a couple winter months there with maybe, hopefully, more be- better technology than we had tonight at the beginning of all of this. Uh, but we'll see where we go from here. Uh, so the first week of January, it's like January 5th or something like that, we'll, uh, we'll come back and jump back into Bible study in Ephesians 4. All right? Good. Thanks, everybody out there for joining us tonight. And those who watched it later, thank you. <laughs>